You know you love something when you love it, but to explain when the moment was that you loved someone is really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it's a series of reinforcing moments. The human brain. The brain, a pulpy mass of cells and fibers, is the center of the network of fibers that make up man's nervous system. But for full expression of man's thinking capabilities, we must look to the whole brain functioning as a unified organism, thinking a problem through and making the right responses. This is Between Us. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. You know, the longer I practice therapy, and the longer that I stay in it as a patient, the more I believe in the possibility of change. And while one of my worries about this podcast is that it's going to turn into an hours-long infomercial for therapy, I do genuinely think that stories of change are interesting. Therapy is simply the context in which we are exploring, but I don't think that change only happens in therapeutic relationships. I think it happens in all kinds of relationships and contexts. Think about your friend who stopped smoking for the sake of their new love interests, or the person who got dumped and that was the motivation they needed to go back to the gym. It seems to me that change happens most often in relational contexts. I think we know this abstractly, but what's happening concretely when we form a relationship? Most of the therapists I know feel more comfortable reading philosophy than we do reading science. My patients are often surprised that I know that something is happening, but I can't necessarily explain it scientifically. And yet, our field is a convenient meeting place for the soft and hard sciences. So I decided to ask a researcher about what happens in the brain during an attachment relationship. And talking to our next guest, Dr. Heidi Island, she made it very clear to me that the brain is beyond a complex series of reinforcing systems, and that we don't exactly know everything about how it works yet. But she did let me know that when we consider the interconnected functions of the brain, it's more like the entire brain works as one giant attachment system. Heidi is a professor of neuroscience at Pacific University in Oregon. She described herself to me as a generalist. This means that she has researched all kinds of phenomena, from the social habits of sea otters, to her more recent work studying concussive symptoms in dancers. For my purposes, I was most interested in the research Dr. Island conducted with the renowned anthropologist Helen Fisher, who is currently the senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and someone whose research has been used by particular dating services. You can go and see TED Talks that she's given on love. Before I play for you the conversation I had with Heidi, there is one thing that I want to point out. You'll hear when we talk, there's a little bit of a difference in how we use the word behavior. I'm kind of stuck in my therapist brain when I use the word behavior, and I'm thinking about certain techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy. These are kinds of therapies that you've heard about on this podcast before. For therapists like myself, we can tend to get hung up on this word like it's some kind of bad word. We 
have criticisms of therapies like that because we think that, that it's about correcting behaviors and not about forming a relationship, which is not necessarily true. One of the many things that I learned in talking to Heidi is that behavior, from her perspective, is much broader than that. It's not about a technique or manualized therapy. It's just a way of describing something that is happening in the mind. So I just felt like I needed to make that distinction. But here's my conversation with Dr. Heidi Island. What is, I mean, what is something specific that we can say about what is happening chemically for us when we form a new relationship with someone? Yeah. The cool thing about um, physiology and about behavioral neuroscience and neuroscience in general um, and psychology is that um, a lot of the the, um, systems are the same. So Hmm. when you're looking at sort of the nervous cocktail and nervous meaning like a nervous system cocktail, um, mm-hmm. that occurs when you're excited about something. You're talking about, you know, sympathetic nervous system arousal in anticipation of something and being excited about something. Um, the cocktail is the same whether you're being mugged or whether you're um, anticipating a date or whether or not you're on a roller coaster, the cocktail, the circulating cocktail or um, the release of neurochemicals is largely the same in all of those contexts. The difference is um, in some of those contexts, it's rewarding and in other contexts, it's um, uh, negative. And so um, the difference is in the attribution. And so if I am looking at a first date, let's say, or um, I'm looking at a new relationship, and new relationships, you can have these profound feelings of connection with someone that mm-hmm. aren't romantic. Um, they're just you feel like you totally connect with this other person. And that in and of itself becomes a rewarding um, experience. And the, there are different neurochemicals that are associated with that. One in particular is dopamine. So dopamine is a neurochemical that is associated with reward, um, but not in the way that you think of getting a jolt of happiness juice. It's not like that. It's an anticipatory um, neurotransmitter. So dopamine um, facilitates the anticipation of an outcome. So, for example, I'm really excited about perhaps going to dinner or um, let's say I haven't had my coffee. I can actually, I'm anticipating the coffee before I have it, and that anticipation can actually be reinforcing before the coffee is even in my hand. Um, And so that's dopamine's job, and it's why also it's considered a movement neurotransmitter. So it's a neurotransmitter that um, is released during both voluntary and involuntary movement. And so if you think about those things that are really rewarding for you, there's motor function that's associated with that. If you consider people who have alcohol or drug dependence, um, watching somebody smoke a cigarette or mix a cocktail or, um, you know, brew coffee even, uh, the process of putting the coffee together, getting the beans and putting them in the, in the um, grinder and so on, there's an anticipation for that that releases dopamine and that binds dopamine 
and in very specific areas of the brain, particularly the midbrain and part of the prefrontal cortex, that gives you that feeling of pleasure. And that's also true in your relationships with others. So again, it's like one of these things where it's a long answer, but that's mm-hmm. just for dopamine. We could also talk about it relative to endorphins. We could also talk about it um, with respect to norepinephrine. Um, and we could talk about it from a neurohormone perspective through oxytocin. Oxytocin is, a, is in fact even called the attachment hormone. Um, it's a neurohormone because it's released um, in both the hypothalamus and the posterior pituitary. But um, oxytocin is released in very high levels during patrician, particularly during lactation, um, also just after orgasm among women. Um, and so it's referred to as this attachment hormone. It's thought to be involved in the reinforcing components and the soothing components of nursing, um, orgasm, um, in first meeting someone, um, there can be a spike in oxytocin. So um, there's a whole bunch that's going on relative to attachment uh, neurobiologically and with respect to the brain. Okay. So just so I get this right, dopamine is a reward, but it's anticipatory. Yeah, it's an anticipatory um, neurotransmitter. So its role is, it's also referred to often as a novelty neurotransmitter um, for sensation seekers. um, What the juice is, is dopamine. You're anticipating, um, you know, the jump off, you know, wherever you are in bungee jumping or um, serial daters. Serial daters, part of the excitement in the dating is in the chase. Once you actually <laughs> get the guy or the girl, it's kind of like a wah wah. It's not really like <laughs> it's over. It's over at that point. So the whole the whole peak is not in, or the whole thrill is not in actually the attachment process, but in the chase. And so dopamine is this neurotransmitter that's significantly associated with a chase. In the research that she did with Helen Fisher, Heidi and the other researchers associated four broad character types with different neurochemicals. You hear us talk a bit about dopamine and oxytocin. The others include serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen. So in this research, you studied um, the relationship between these chemicals, these neurotransmitters, right? And yeah. personality and personality types. Is that would that be correct to say? Um, temperament. Yeah. Temperament. Yeah. Our role was essentially diving into the literature, making sure our behavioral connections between each of these um, uh, neurochemical pathways were consistent in our measure. So we essentially created a biological um, predictor of temperament and um, looked at them relative to what we know about dopamine, what we know 
about behaviors associated with serotonin, what we know about behaviors associated with testosterone, and what we know with behaviors pertaining to serotonin and oxytocin. Um, mm-hmm. Serotonin and oxytocin specifically being more of, um, initially we referred to that domain as a negotiator domain, where this person is has a high um, motivation for affinity socially with others, um, they tend to be the one to go in and negotiate or to compromise or um, um, try to establish some kind of social um, companionate relationship with others. People in that particular domain, if they're a manager, they're going to be socially motivated more than task motivated, whereas someone in the testosterone domain, we initially referred to that as the director domain, um, are going to be high task oriented, less concerned with the social affiliation that's necessary perhaps to have the morale that you want um, in, a, mm-hmm. in a social group. And so um, we were looking at those relative to how would that play out um, in terms of helping match people for a relationship, particularly online. Um, dating is tricky because there's no, there's none of that heat that you feel if you're at a bar or you're, you know, wherever you're meeting people, at a restaurant or somebody introduces you and you can, you see them and you know often just through thin slicing literature that, you know, often within the first few seconds when you first meet someone, it's like, meh, or you're like, wow, I really feel some sort of connection with this person. Um, and dating online, you don't really have a sense of that, but you can create this um, companionate feeling with someone through repeated interaction, getting to know them indirectly, um, and then you meet them and go, wow, this is, you know, this person is great. The problem with that, though, is that you can have that companionate relationship with virtually anyone by establishing a correspondence. Rather than match you on variables of like whether or not what your attractiveness is or income or um, uh, you know what you do for a living or uh, personality measures, um, we were looking at consistency across neurochemical domains. We know certain behaviors are incongruent in terms of relationships. A, a high serotonin person would not. Um, do as well with a high dopamine person. Hypothetically, why would someone who is high serotonin not get along well with someone who is high dopamine? So, serotonin system is associated more with tradition, more with um, uh, neuroticism, with um, uh, risk avoidance um, behavior, mm-hmm. where dopamine, these are energetic um more, there is an association with extroversion, but more with um, openness to experience. So this is more a temperamental quality that is associated with openness to experience, whereas serotonin has an aversion to novelty. And so two people, one person is, yes, I want to try a new restaurant, and yes, I want to try something I've never had before, the serotonin person Um, or at least the cautious avoidant person would be like, no, I want to go to the place that I've been going to since I was child, and no, I don't want to try, you know, sea urchin. Once I realized the anticipatory effects of dopamine, I started to see this neurotransmitter at play in all kinds of situations. 
Did you ever encounter someone who feels the need to create drama in their relationships? I wonder if the anticipation of stirring shit up gives them a rush of dopamine. Or what about someone who is obsessive compulsive? I bet they get a fix from the anticipation of cleaning. And in the last few hours of my work week, when my mood starts to heighten, and I think about how many tacos I might eat at the taco truck that night. Dopamine at work. Is there any research or any information on how temperament changes in a person? So um, you're asking one of the um, early sort of arguments in personality theory. So mm-hmm. personality is a set of traits. It's thought to be largely stable throughout the life course. Temperament is more of your, it's like personality because it is also um, a series of characteristics that def- that can define a person. But the difference between personality and temperament is more along the um, lines of temperament um, is your approach to avoidance and um, approach behavior, your, your way of um, identifying and solving a conflict. Um, mm. And so really more consistent with this idea of attachment. If attachment is about having these stable relationships and your approach avoidance behavior based on these early relationships, where personality is more about your traits, about particular qualities like your conscientiousness, your agreeableness, your openness to new experiences, um, if you're more anxious or um, cautious, those kinds of things mm-hmm. that are associated more with traits are personality. So temperament is more of a biological constellation of qualities that define that person's management of um, conflict avoidance or relationship or new um experiences, so how you approach solving a problem or how you approach um, uh, managing anxiety. So are you someone that allows things to kind of roll off you or are you someone that goes into high alarm mode? And so by those definitions of temperament and personality, it seems like personality would be the more malleable of the two? Yes. Mm -hmm. Although so much of the literature and personality asserts that um, although personality can change, it's largely stable across the life course. Is there, are there relational factors that create uh, more optimal environments for change to happen to the way temperament and personality work? Sure. So um, change can occur, but normally it's when we talk about a change, it's relative to behavior, not relative to personality or temperament, unless you're talking about a pathological personality. But even those, um, as you know, as a therapist, are really hard to change. For example, um, change requires, when you're talking about behavior, some introspection. And if Mm -hmm. you're looking at a pathological personality, one like narcissism, for example, where you have either um, 
in, in, in both types of narcissism, essentially a lack of introspection for the most part in their mm-hmm. behavior. Um, so you don't typically talk, at least um, within behavioral neuroscience, relative to changing a personality or changing a temperament. You can talk about making adjustments in behavior. Like, for example, if you're more of a compulsive person, if that's a behavior that is potentially part of who you are, it may have been that early on you were um, a high sensation, uh, high sensation seeker, so um, really liked those high impact sports or those, um, uh, you know, more dangerous sports, and that persists into your adulthood. And you find that when you're introduced to alcohol, that's fantastic and more the better. Or you were introduced to cigarettes and that's fantastic. And it's rewarding socially if it's in that context. So um, then you can look at those and go, wow, um, these aren't necessarily good for you. You don't want to be smoking. You don't want to be drinking to excess. Then you're looking at, okay, how do we change this? If this person has a high sensation seeking temperament, you can't necessarily change the neural substrate that's facilitated that, particularly if you have a whole history, a whole life of neural circuitry that supported that behavior. Um, But what you can do is work through that um, using mindfulness techniques or um, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and essentially Mm -hmm. um, work on slowly changing the neural circuitry that has consistently provided the reward for that behavior. Does that make sense? So by changing your neural architecture, and when I say that, I mean changing the synaptic connections that have persisted in being rewarding in that way. And it isn't always rewarding or people wouldn't be seeking to change it. (laughs) Right. And the way that you do that is by essentially not engaging in those behaviors for a while and finding alternative ways to reinforce you're not engaging in that. Taking a moment um, to acknowledge what it is that is driving that behavior and what it is that's really reinforcing will allow new neural circuitry to form. I mean, your synaptogenesis occurs... um, in virtually every new behavior, this phone call, I'll remember this tomorrow because in having this conversation with you, I'm talking about things in a way that I've never phrased them before. I've had questions asked in a way that I've never had them asked before. I haven't ever talked to you before. So through even this conversation, my neural architecture is changing. When we talk about behavioral change, um, I think for us practitioners, we associate certain techniques with that. Uh, are we talking about behavior in different ways? With respect to behavior, in the way that I'm using the term, it's not a manualized um, term. It doesn't have the rigidity that, um, you know, 1950s behaviorism. Behavior is just the actions performed by a nerve cell. Regardless of what the therapeutic tool is, if you are with a client and over the period of their um, um, tenure with you as a therapist, their depression begins to abate or their anxiety levels are reduced. Part of that is likely through retraining um, 
their thought, assuming they have introspection, just the act of being introspective about behavior, um, even with role play, allows you to think about things in a novel way. And even in thinking about something in a novel way has in itself a, a rewarding component. That's why we talk about it as that epiphany moment. And epiphany is almost always reinforcing because it sheds light on something that you haven't formally thought about. So sure. for you to have a client who improves in terms of their anxiety um, doesn't necessarily have to be about um, a CDP approach, but still in talking it out with you and working through alternative ways to deal with that or even having insight into what the origin of that anxiety is would certainly change some of those problem behaviors. Sure. And I, I think I think listening to you, I realized that my uh, in my resistance against the 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 language of behavior i'm thinking about it too narrowly that someone's ability to uh, practice metacognition is a, is a behavior that their ability to think about how they think or feel about something before reacting is a behavior that can change absolutely within neuroscience you have behavioral neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience but um they're still looking at behavior one is is a um, internal behavior and another is an external one that you can see. But it's still a change in state. It's still an action of some kind. So it seems less complex in that context to draw the line between the behavior of thinking about how you're feeling or the behavior of going to your therapist's office with the reward of the anticipatory rush you might get to see that person or the feelings of connection or feelings of epiphany to enforce those cognitive behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a difference. And one of the values of a psychotherapist is a neutral party, right? So you go to a therapist or a psychotherapist for... Um, emotional support because there is an expectation that it's a neutral party and they will have insight that you may not have. Um, there is this sense of neutrality. There is this sense of, I can trust this person. There is an oath associated with trusting that person. And so the only goal of the therapist is to help you with your personal goals. In which case, each time you experience those personal goals, it reinforces that relationship. And conversely, that could be true, too. You go in and you have to deal with stuff about yourself, perhaps, that you don't want to. Um, but in dealing with that, in having that, again, that epiphany experience that perhaps others have been unwilling to share, um, you learn something and you can change it. And then in seeing the changes outside of that therapeutic context, it creates a neural pathway um, that promotes behavioral change. Are there similarities between an exciting new romantic relationship and a helping relationship in regards to um, our susceptibility to thinking in new ways and to experiencing new behaviors? Mm -hmm.
Yeah. So, um, so just so I'm clear on what you're asking, you're essentially mm-hmm. asking me if in a new romantic relationship, because it's it's a new romantic relationship, and you want to be liked by that person, your mm-hmm. openness to being the best version of yourself is hot. And are mm-hmm. there helping relationships where you don't have the reinforcement or the incentive? through the intimacy, but you still are open to change. Or is emotional intimacy a reward? I know what you're saying. I think I can answer your question. Okay. But it's not, but it's really not from a neuroscientific perspective. It's from early learning. It's, um, it's David Primack uh, in the 1970s. He um, proposed a model called the Primack Principle. And it's this idea that um, you can reinforce low occurring behavior with a beha- with an outcome that you would normally engage in. So let's say you want to um, you want to have a close intimate relationship with someone um, romantically and so you're willing, let's say, to go to a ball game because what you really want is that romantic relationship. And let's say I have no interest in spectator sports, which would not be an untruth. So <laughs> I may be open to going to that because um, I'm reinforcing that behavior that I would normally not engage in with a behavior that I really that I that I really want, which is to interact with that person. Um, the same would be true for a helping relationship. So let's say I have I'm resistant to going to therapy. Let's say I have some stereotypic notion about head shrinking or stigmatization of going to a mental health professional or something along those lines. I think mm-hmm. um, one thing that brings the, the processing of that from a neurochemical point of view is um, it is rewarding to be understood. It is right. rewarding to talk about yourself. Um, it is reward generally to talk about yourself. Um, And so to have somebody interested in you um, would reinforce that low-occurring behavior, that behavior of going to a therapist or being willing to share your problems. Having um, somebody who is neutral that you can trust listen and affirm your concerns or your trauma or your anxiety or... Um, pay attention to you is rewarding mm-hmm. and that creates a reward path for that experience and so it's surprising in a, in a way that is unexpected and is affirming um, it creates a neural circuit that is reinforcing Right. I think the thing that I'm interested in personally is um, the role that love can play in uh, and how we change maybe love is just another way of saying attachment in the context of how we're talking about it love is one of those labels that is really hard to deconstruct because it you know you love something when you love it but to explain when the moment was that you loved someone is really hard mm-hmm. and i think it's because it's a series of reinforcing moments it involves memory, 
It involves familiarity. It involves being understood, but it really involves memory. I think about it just relative to my grandparents who recently passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother outlived my grandfather by a year. Wow. And I didn't know them very well, actually, but I saw her right before she died, shortly after my grandfather died. One of the things that I was struck by is I don't, I don't know how she interacted with my grandfather a lot prior to his passing, but I was struck by the fact that she had no anchor for her life without my grandfather because he was a witness to all of her life experiences. And so yeah. just his very being was an affirmation to who she was as a person. And um, and they did have a deep love for one another. And if you look at any of the adult attachment literature, um, they mm-hmm. talk about attachment styles. And also even if you look at Helen Fisher's work on, on what love is from a biological perspective, um, there's these different phases of love, and we talk about limerence in the early phase, which often people refer to as infatuation, and it's a very neurochemical, intense heat, um, mm-hmm. very passionate. But as you get to know one another, and as that sort of heat becomes more tempered, the friendship that's associated with that um, emerges, and it's been a series of reinforcing interactions of attachment. So the attachment is certainly present and it is part of what defines love but I think it's not just the attachment it's the history Hmm. yeah you know that's sort of my perspective because love is just such a um, poetic term that's very difficult to nail down or to reduce into any one thing if you talk about it from neurochemistry um, it's it's different um than if you talk about it from more of a poetic perspective. But in general, certainly it's about attachment. And the degree and strength of that attachment implies greater liking or love. That was Dr. Heidi Island speaking to us from Portland, Oregon. Like so many of the conversations we have on this show, it seems like our conversation was only a tiny scratch on the surface of the subject. We want to leave every conversation open for revisiting. So this is the first episode we've recorded since our launch, and I have to say that Mason and I have been overwhelmed with the positive response. Thanks so much for the emails and the reviews. We're still growing, and we hope you like the show enough to share with your friends. The most encouraging part, for me, is the response has not just been from people in the profession. We hope that these conversations would be interesting for everyone. And that seems to be the impression we're getting. But we'd like to keep hearing your feedback. If you have ideas for topics to discuss personal stories that we might find interesting. It's all stuff we want to hear. If you want to email us, do so at betweenuspodcast at gmail. And please keep following us on social media and writing reviews for us on iTunes. As usual, Between Us is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely. Mason also composed our music. 
We're excited to show you the episodes we have coming up. Stay tuned. And in the meantime, take care. <laughs>